Well, it's been a couple of weeks, but let's open our Bibles to 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy in, in the second chapter. Two weeks ago, if you'll recall, we had a terrible rainstorm here, and um, we had a very small, intimate group, and so we, we did a special study uh, in, from the Gospel of Luke. Uh, last week, we had the Chafer Conference, and one of the speakers, up, I think Pat Kate was that night, so we gave you an opportunity to, to, um, to hear him. So let's swing back, just in terms of at least reading the, the text, to chapter 2, verse 1. We'll be in verse 8 tonight, but let's swing back to chapter 2, verse 1, to remind you where we are. Remember, this is written right before Paul is to be executed in Rome uh, by beheading um, as a martyr for Jesus Christ. In verse 1 of chapter 2, the apostle says, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, these entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. And also, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. The hard-working farmer ought to be the first to receive his share of the crops. Consider what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. And now in verse 8, Paul says, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David, according to my gospel. Timothy was in the midst of difficult times, which were soon to become more challenging. Paul knew this, and so he prepares Timothy by encouraging him to remember the resurrected Christ. All of us have problems that come up with, with relative frequency. If we are to get our focus on the problem itself, the problem will easily overwhelm us. But if we view that problem through the lens of Jesus Christ, with one eye on him, actually with both eyes on him, and see the problem behind him, then it's going to work out well. But if we just view the problem... The problem is going to defeat us. Paul reminds Timothy that he doesn't worship a dead prophet. He worships a risen Savior. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the epicenter of Christianity. Without it, there is no Christianity. But with it, there is no viable faith but Christianity. Some of you may have studied world religions. And it may become extremely overwhelming. What is it that the Buddhists believe? What is it that the Hindus hold to? Now, what's the, what's the difference between Hinduism and Buddhism and Islam? And then that's just the biggies. What about all the hundreds and hundreds of, of minor groups? And it can be overwhelming at times, but it doesn't need to be. You see, you see, it all boils down to the person of Jesus Christ. That's what it all comes down to. Because if Jesus Christ was resurrected, it is, Christianity is the only viable faith, period. Because he claimed to be the only way to the Father, and then he proved that by virtue of his resurrection. Now that's either true or it's false. If it's false, then reject it entirely and pick whatever suits your fancy. But if it's true, all the other faiths pale, not just into insignificance, but into oblivion. Aldous Huxley thought that philosophy's greatest problem was the problem of death. But the solution that he proposed comes up a bit short, I think. He says this, and I quote him, Ignore death up until the last moment. Then when it can't be ignored any longer, 
have yourself squirted full of morphine and shuffled off in a coma. Thoroughly, thoroughly sensible, humane, and scientific, eh? Well, not really. It doesn't do anything for me. Sadly, a man who was considered the brightest of a bright family rejected Christ, rejected God altogether, and became a secular humanist. Huxley's solution to death was anemic as he was as a person. But he's not the only one. Sigmund Freud was the same way. Sigmund Freud had a, had a deal with his doctor that as soon as it became clear that he was on a downhill struggle and he wouldn't recover, he, he had the doctor promise him that he would shoot him full of morphine, enough morphine to kill him. And that's exactly what happened. Neither one of them could handle death. I do agree with Huxley in this. And that is, you can, we can talk about all philosophy's problems, but one of these days there is going to be death for all of us. And whatever philosophy you hold, whatever theology you hold, it better handle that issue, or it is worthless. And Huxley's philosophy was worthless. I can't imagine living on this planet with the problems that we go through every single day, thinking that one day I'm going to draw my last breath and that's going to be the end of it. I won't even realize that I ever existed. There'll never be another thought. There will be no consciousness that I existed in the first place. That's no way to live. But how do I know that that's not the way it really is? The reason I know that is because someone has come back from the dead to tell us that that's not the way it really is. I'm not talking about people that come back and they've been in heaven for 45 minutes or 90 minutes or an hour, whatever it is. That's all fine and dandy. But that, that, that does not compare. The, the thing that bothers me, and you better be very careful, there is one that has come back that matters. One that was proven dead with a spear through his side that came back and ate and drank and talked and, and, and lived amongst us. There is one that has, there's one person that proves to me that there is a life after this one, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ, the resurrected Christ, who predicted it and then it was fulfilled. We can do better than Huxley's solution. Christianity offers the best solution to the problem of death, but it is more than that. As Francis Schaeffer used to say, Christianity not only has the best answers to life's problems, it has really the only answers to life's problems. G.K. Chesterton put it this way a generation before Schaeffer. He said, a man is not really convinced of a philosophic theory when he finds that something proves it. He is only really convinced when he finds that everything proves it. There is an event, an historical event, an historical event verified by over 500 witnesses that provides the proof, the validity, the validation for the claims of Christianity. This event has been revealed and verified in such a way as to fulfill Chesterton's axiom, everything proves it. Dinsdale T. Young said this, they, he said, They sometimes tell us that no one has ever come back from the dead or from the other world to give us assurance of it, but that is not so. Christ came back. He authenticated the unseen universe. And now amid all the proofs of immortality, no evidence is so decisive as the resurrection of our Lord. It is a shame, I think, that we really as Christians only focus on the resurrection for a very short period of time each year. Because without the resurrection, there is no Christianity. But again, with it, there is nothing else. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is an essential event in the Christian faith. Without it, there is no Christianity. So don't come tell me that you believe that Jesus was a historical figure. 
that you believe that he died on the cross, that Passover in Jerusalem, but you don't believe that stuff about him being risen from the dead. Well, no, you're not a Christian. I will stand here on the authority of the Word of God because you're not trusting in the Jesus of the Bible if you reject that. We don't worship a dead prophet. About a quarter of the world does. But we don't. We worship a risen Savior. There's a world of difference there. The bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ was proof of his deity and his lordship and was an indispensable evidence of the value of his death on the cross. Since the time of the crucifixion and the resurrection, there have always been challenges to the claims of the resurrection by skeptics. The earliest rumor spread by the Sanhedrin was that the disciples stole the body of Jesus to make it look like he was resurrected. The problem is that they would have to have gotten past the Roman guards first. And it is quite unlikely in view of the fact that for them to get past the Roman guards and steal the body, they would have had to deal with the historical fact that those guards would have been executed had that body been stolen. A small little detail that kind of muddies up that story. But I don't know how much you have to pay a Roman guard in order to have himself be executed so you can steal a body. But I'm sure the disciples didn't have that kind of money. Now later, a theory called the swoon theory came into to favor. This theory says that Jesus wasn't really dead when they placed him in the tomb. He was just in a coma. He was just swooning. Now I know you probably think of swooning as how you felt, like how Cindy felt when she first went out on her first day with me. She just, didn't you? She just swooned. But this is a different kind of swooning. Unless you think, unless maybe you were in a coma. I didn't, I didn't. I didn't. I thought she was just sleepy, but I, maybe, maybe she was swooning. But that's a different kind of swooning. You know what I'm talking about. That, that, that's, the, the word is used a different way than, than it was perhaps back in, in other times. This kind of swooning means the person went into a coma. Well, here, too, we come face to face with the absurd. Jesus had been on the cross by all historical accounts for six hours having been severely scourged before that, having been so severely scourged that he couldn't carry his own cross. And so a man from North Africa by the name of Simon had to carry, at, I believe, at least that cross bar. It's impossible to say with, with surety, but he had to at least carry part of that cross up the hill. Jesus couldn't do that. Then he's crucified. John records that after the six hours, because the Jews wanted all the bodies down so they wouldn't defile the, the day, the Roman guards, who were experts at determining who was dead and who was alive, that was their job. They were professional executioners. They, they would come by and they would break the legs of the prisoners who, who were being crucified so that they couldn't continue to push themselves up and get air. And then they would eventually, within a very short time, uh, probably I would think even minutes, uh, suffocate. But the text tells us, the historical record tells us, and the historical record of the New Testament is the most historically reliable document of the ancient world. The historical record tells us that when they came to the body of Jesus, they found him already dead. But apparently, just to verify it, one of the soldiers thrust a spear in his side. And out from that side came, at least according to John's view, in his view, and he was one standing there, blood and water. Now, in times past, I've had associations with a variety of different kind of doctors. One was a pathologist, and I asked him about this, this kind of idea without telling him why I was asking him. 
And I asked him approximately how long would it take for the blood to start separating out to where if there was some sort of wound, some sort of injury, that there may be appear to be blood and serum. The doctor happened to be a Christian, so he asked me, are you asking about the cross? I said, actually, I am. He said, that's a good question. He said, in his view, in his view, pathological, it be about 45 minutes. It could be more or less, but at least 45 minutes for that process to take place. So Jesus might have been on the cross for six hours and 45 minutes. We don't know. But the point is, that doesn't happen to your blood until after you've been dead for a while. So the swoon theory really doesn't hold much water. In fact, it's, it's, it's even more absurd than the disciples stole the body theory. I don't know if you've ever heard of Marcus Borg. Marcus Borg is a professor of uh, philosophy at Oregon State University. He is a, um, a rather irritating man, as far as I'm concerned. One of uh, Will's uh, colleagues uh, by the name of Daryl Bach debated Marcus Borg up in uh, Denton at North Texas State University uh, some years ago about the resurrection. But Marcus Borg says this, it was a spiritual resurrection, not a physical one. The disciples, and I will do it the way he does, experienced the resurrected Christ, even though he was not physically resurrected. I don't mean to make fun of him, but he needs to be made fun of, because he, this guy is out there deceiving people. Not too long ago, we got a, we, at our home in Clear Lake, we received a mailer for a new church. I think, it was, I think, I think the mailer said, a new kind of church is coming to Clear Lake. You know who their first speaker was? Marcus Borg. Now, there's probably not one in 10,000 people in Clear Lake who knew who that was. But this man is no friend of Christianity. But isn't Satan clever? But recently, we've been presented with one of the more bizarre assertions claiming to disprove the resurrection, that of James Cameron, the the theologian par excellence and filmmaker who claims to have found the tomb of Jesus. James Cameron, of course, did the film Titanic. and he's, he's quite a good filmmaker, but he's not an archaeologist, and he's not a historian. In fact, this was something that came across the Discovery Channel. I, I read yesterday, actually, in part of preparation for this, that the Discovery Channel has pulled all subsequent viewings of that particular special because it has been so thoroughly discredited by people who are Christian scholars and non-Christian scholars and archaeologists alike that it became an embarrassment to them. So Cameron is rushing this out to DVD and video to get it out into the stores. But it's because it has been canceled by the Discovery Channel. But there are at least ten reasons why the Jesus tomb claim is completely bogus. For those of you who don't, don't know, Cameron... Claim, actually, he's not claiming to have found it, but he has an archaeologist who claims to have found a tomb as, as somewhat uh, a couple of decades old that supposedly has the bones that w when when bodies were buried in the ancient world they would they would decay and then once the decay took place they would take the bones place them in what was a box called an ossuary and then that box would stay buried for as long as it could stay buried and they have claimed to have found to have found the bones of Jesus in allegedly Jesus' wife, Mary of Magdala. It's, it's unclear to me, and perhaps, Will, you can clear this up. It's unclear to me whether Mary, the mother of Jesus, is supposed to be in that ossuary or not. I've read the website. I get conflicting views as to whether they say she was there. But it's really a bizarre uh, type of claim. But there are at least ten reasons why this Jesus tomb claim is completely bogus. And I, and I offer these to you. First of all, there is no DNA evidence. There is no DNA evidence that this is the historical Jesus of Nazareth. That was the biggest joke from the beginning. 
anybody knows up from down or day from night should realize what, what are they going to compare it with. There, there's no DNA evidence to prove that this is Jesus of Nazareth. And in fact, the only DNA evidence that they've offered shows that two of the people that are buried in the same area are not physically related. That he possibly could be, they speculate, husband and wife. But that's a pretty big jump to say that this is Jesus of Nazareth of the first century that was crucified in Mary of Magdala. Second reason, by the testimony of scholars both within the Christian faith and without the, uh, from without the Christian faith, the statistical analysis that's offered by Cameron in that, in that particular program is most untrustworthy. This is one of the reasons why the Discovery Channel and ABC is the parent company behind that, pulled that from the air. Third, the name Jesus, or Yeshua, was a popular name in the first century, appearing, get this, in 98 other tombs and on 21 other ossuaries in that same area. So I just want you to realize, why would they pick this one and say this is the Jesus of the biblical narrative? The fourth, there is no historical evidence that Jesus was ever married or had a child. We kind of went through all this with the whole Da Vinci Code thing last year. But Satan doesn't quit. He's going to keep, he's, Satan is like a particular political party. They're going to keep, keep on and keep on and keep on and keep on so that nothing ever gets done. Satan is going to keep on and keep on and keep on and try to get us distracted. I don't want you to be distracted by this. I'd like to, I kind of like you to think about it now while I'm going over it and then move on. What I'm trying to show you is that there is, there's nothing to be afraid of. And one of the nice things about this is Dan Enright in our college slash high school class is going to cover part of this for these teens and college kids so that they can handle this amongst their peers. The fifth reason why this claim is completely bogus is that the earliest followers of Jesus never called him Jesus the son of Joseph. Nowhere is that recorded. Not in that particular way. The sixth reason this is bogus is that early church history has always asserted that Mary the mother of Jesus, lived her last years in Ephesus under the care of the Apostle John. It is unreasonable to believe that her body or her bones were later taken back to Jerusalem for burial. Seven, the Talapot tomb, this is what this is called, and ossuaries are such that they would have belonged to a rich family, which does not match the historical data for Jesus. In fact, quite the, quite the contrary. Eighth, fourth century church historian Eusebius makes it quite clear that the body of James, who's supposed to be buried in this same tomb as well, the brother of Jesus, was buried alone near the Temple Mount and that his tomb was visited in the early centuries, making it very unlikely that the Talapot tomb was Jesus' family tomb. Ninth, just two more and I'll leave this. The two Mary ossuaries do not mention anyone from Magdal or Magdala, but simply has the name Mary which was also one of the most common Jewish female names of the time. And tenth, by all ancient accounts, the tomb of Jesus was empty, making it highly unlikely that it was moved to another tomb, decayed for a year's time, and then the bones put in an ossuary. When this thing first came out, I remember Cindy and David and I were sitting at the kitchen table, and we discussed it as as families would. And, and out of the mouth of, used to they say babes, but I'll say teens now. Out of the mouth of a teen came perhaps the most uh, uh, damaging evidence for this. And it has to do with number 10. If the enemies of Jesus could have produced the body, they would have done it. 
And that would have stopped all of this. If he had just said, oh, no, no, he's not buried there. He's buried right around the corner over here. That stops the whole thing. But they didn't and they couldn't because he was physically resurrected. The tomb was empty. Now, that's the difference between Christianity and Marcus Borg of Oregon State. Marcus Borg would say, yes, Jesus was resurrected, but he was resurrected in their experience. It was a spiritual. They, they so expected him to be resurrected. No, they didn't. They were shocked out of their socks when he was resurrected. They didn't expect him to be resurrected. He had told them he would be, but that wasn't, that wasn't what their, their grid was. So much so that Thomas has saying, listen, I'm not believing that unless I see him. I've got to see him and I've got to touch him. This effort to discredit the resurrection falls seriously short of the mark. Dr. Gary Habermas says, In light of all the incredible number of problems with the recent claim that Jesus' grave has been found, the time-honored, multifaceted evidence for the body and the resurrection of Jesus is more convincing than ever. Even the early opponents of the Christian message acknowledged that Jesus' tomb was empty, and the evidence for Jesus' bodily resurrections has never been refuted. So much for James Cameron's uh, special on the Discovery Channel. Orthodox Christianity has always acknowledged two things about the resurrection body of Christ. First, and these are extremely important, and I have found in, in different teaching venues that too many Christians don't don't have a, a good grasp of these two points. So listen carefully. I'm, I'm sure you do, but it never hurts to review this. First, the resurrection body of Jesus was the same physical body in which Jesus was crucified. Second, Jesus' body, at the moment it was resurrected, became an immortal, glorified body, a body that was physical but also imperishable. So Jesus was physically resurrected, as opposed to a spiritual resurrection. The body that walked out of the tomb had been transformed, but it was the same body that went into the tomb. Allow me these seven points of validation for that. First, the tomb is empty. So it's not like they were seeing a, a manifestation of Jesus. They were seeing Jesus. Second, Jesus was touched and handled in resurrection body. Third, Jesus asserted that his resurrection body had flesh and bones. He says, touch me and see. A ghost doesn't have flesh and bones. Now, Jesus' flesh wasn't sinful. You know how Paul uses the word flesh when we studied Romans he, he, and, and other places? He uses that as a negative term, a, a term for our sinful body of corruption. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. He's just talking about physical. His body is physical. He died and rose in actual human flesh. One of my favorites, Jesus ate on at least four occasions in his resurrection body, meaning that there's going to be some sort of supper in heaven at some time. I suspect dessert. Now I want to get something right out. I want to get something right out on the table. Here, yeah. Because it was a, I was approached after this Sunday deal that people were kissing up to me by bringing chocolate chip cookies. That is, you know, that is fine. There's nothing wrong with that. So if you were one of the three people that brought them, keep coming. You know, don't let somebody talk you out of that. Goodness sakes. Now, now back to a serious one. Jesus' resurrection body had wounds. This is significant. This is more significant, I think, than we give it credit for sometimes. The Apostle Paul, who speaks about the resurrection body perhaps more than any of the other apostles in his writings, the Apostle Paul was, was beaten. He, he was stoned. 
He was shipwrecked. Uh, uh, he was scourged. I'm, I am 100% certain that when the Apostle Paul was beheaded, that his physical body had scars on it, the, the scars of service for the Lord Jesus Christ. But the, there is no indication whatsoever that the Apostle Paul's resurrection body will have scars on it. And I think the reason for that is there is only one individual, one human being that has ever lived that deserves to have scars on his resurrection body. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. Because those scars, when we see him in heaven, I don't know how we're going to handle the, the overwhelming emotion. I don't know if you've ever thought of this. When we, when we, talk, when we, when we talk about seeing him face to face, Will I dance for you, Jesus, or at, at his knees will I fall? Will I sing hallelujah? Will I be able to speak at all? As, the, as the, one of my favorite hymns from Mercy Me says. But I wonder what emotion will fill our souls when we glance down and see the nail holes in his feet. And we would look at it when he reaches out for us and we see the wounds in his hand. Because those are permanent memorials to the reason we're there in the first place. We'll never be able to look at him without remembering what it was that got us there to begin with. He's the only one that deserves to have scars on his resurrection body. The rest of us don't deserve it. It's like in our Sunday morning sermon last week. I hope you caught this, but the point I was trying to make was Jesus Christ had to die alone. Peter might have very well been willing to die. In his soul, he probably thought he was. But Peter couldn't die with Jesus that day. Jesus had to die alone that day. That was a very special event between the eternal Father and the eternal Son. If Peter had died with Jesus that day, then somehow throughout the history of the course of the church, there would be people who would raise Peter as a co-redeemer. They raised Mary as a co-redeemer. She didn't die with him that day. They raised her as a co-redeemer just because her soul was pierced as had been prophesied. Can you imagine what would have happened if they would have cut Peter down while Peter was trying to defend the Lord Jesus Christ? No. Our salvation was purchased by one person, and that one person will have the permanent scars to prove it. The rest of us, I'm not putting down what the Apostle Paul went through. I don't want to come anywhere close to the suffering he had to endure. I don't want to come anywhere close. The man that I'm going to be in, in the, uh, Pakistan and India with, uh, not too long ago, his, his brother was taken out and, and uh, burnt because, because he was a Christian. People are dying every day because they're Christians. But there will be no scars on your resurrection body, just on his. Jesus' resurrection body is recognizable. Last night I was talking to a student, and the student was asserting with, with, with a certain amount of dogmatism that um, that while we will recognize Christ in heaven, there will be no interaction between the rest of us. I don't think you can validate that at all. I don't know what the point is. We're part of the body of Christ. <laughs> We're all part of the same body. That, that is ridiculous to think that we won't, we won't have any interaction with one another. I think we can actually assert in view of the fact that Jesus' resurrection body is recognizable, that ours will be recognizable as well. Now that's going to be neat, isn't it? Because most of us... Not all of you out there, but most of us would like to have a few flaws corrected. But how that's going to happen, 
I don't know, but you're going to be in, in perfect form, but still look like you do right now. That's going to be neat. That's going to be wonderful. And because our body's going to be recognizable just like Jesus's is. Jesus's resurrection body can be seen and heard. Ours will be as well. So Jesus was physically resurrected as opposed to being spiritually resurrected. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 12 to 19, the Apostle Paul insisted that if Jesus didn't rise bodily, bodily from the dead, then our faith is useless, that we are still in our sins, that departed loved ones are lost, that the apostles are false witnesses, and that we, he says, we of all men are to be most pitied. Now, people pity us now. I don't know if you've ever heard this, but they do. Bruce, if that's what you need... If you need to believe that there's life after this one to get through it, you just go ahead. It's not for me. But if you need that, you go ahead. Well, go ahead and pity me now if that's what you want. But it's not a real pity. It's not a, it's not a legitimate pity. But if Jesus is still in that tomb somewhere, then yeah, pity me. But not really. They're to be pitied too because if he's still in that tomb, they, got, they have no hope either. To summarize his argument, Paul claimed that if believers have no future, specifically resurrected body like Christ, then we have no past or present as well. That is, we have no forgiveness of our sins in the past. We have no advantage over unbelievers in the present. So did the resurrection really happen? Well, you bet it did. You bet it did. The tomb was empty. If the Jewish authorities could have produced the body of Jesus, they would have. And they would have ended all this right off the bat. The disciples went from being scared to death to on fire for Jesus Christ. And as Chuck Colson said, men will die for what they believe to, to be the truth, but men will rarely die for what they know to be a lie. Jesus appeared to over 500 people, most of whom who were still alive when Paul writes 1 Corinthians in the, mid, the, the mid-50s. Had anyone wanted to, they could have simply checked it out with the witnesses. Yes, the resurrection really happened. And it is the epicenter of Christianity. I close with these words by Philip Yancey in his fire text, The Jesus I Never Knew. He says, The gospel shows the disciples cringing in locked rooms, terrified that the same thing that happened to Jesus might happen to them. Too afraid to even attend to Jesus' burial, they left it to a couple of women to take care of his body. The disciples seemed utterly incapable of faking a resurrection or risking their lives by stealing a body, nor did it occur to them in their state of despair. According to all four Gospels, women were the first witnesses of the resurrection, a fact that no conspirator in the first century would have invented. Jewish courts did not even accept the testimony of female witnesses. A deliberate cover-up, Yancey says, would have put Peter or John or better yet Nicodemus in the spotlight not built around the reports from women. Since the Gospels were written several decades after the events, the authors had plenty of time to straighten out such an anomaly, unless, of course, they were not concocting a legend, but just recording the plain facts. The plain fact is that a man named Jesus lived in the first part of the first century, claiming during his life to be the Son of God, and that faith in Him was the only way one would ever get to heaven. He validated His claims by virtue of both His words and His works. He predicted that He would be crucified and raised from the dead three days later. And it happened. 
and it is the only thing like it in recorded human history. As difficult times approached, Paul encouraged Timothy to remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. It takes an absurd faith to trust a non-risen Jesus. But a reasonable faith has no difficulty at all trusting a risen Christ. In the days to come, we may very well face troubling times. I can almost promise you we will, either personally or nationally or perhaps both. But we need not face them with the uncertainty of a Kierkegaardian leap of faith. Ours is a reasonable faith. We worship a risen Savior, one who faced death and came back never to die again.